Would you ever feel like, uh, like you're just jumping through hoops? You just feel like you're getting the runaround and you're, you're going through a lot and it seems like it's going nowhere and it seems like it's, it's to no end. You ever get that feeling? Sometimes life has that feeling. You're just, every day it's just jumping through hoops or it's just the runaround and, and it just, you know, an, the day ends and another day begins and, and where is this heading to? And it just sounds, just seems like a, a, a very, you know, repetitive cycle and uh, it, it can be very frustrating, you know, it, it can. But there's no one, uh, after reading what we're going to read today in Acts 23 through 26, no one who possibly has more of a right to feel like they're jumping through hoops and getting the runaround to no avail than the Apostle Paul. What we're going to see today uh, as we continue our study in the book of Acts is that Paul is definitely going through the motions. And it doesn't seem like it's heading anywhere. It it, it doesn't seem like uh, that it's leading to something. But it is, in fact, leading to something. Uh, As we continue on in Acts, we'll see next week that it is actually leading to Paul having the opportunity to preach the gospel to the most powerful man in the known world. And so it's not a runaround and it's not jumping through hoops. It it is for a purpose. It is leading to something. It's leading to God's glory uh, through the gospel. Um, But it doesn't necessarily seem like it possibly at the time. And as a matter of fact, Paul says that it's his belief that all of life is leading to something that has got him in his current predicament to begin with. And so I'll pray, and then we're going to jump in and see what Paul's predicament is and see the the hoop jumping that Paul's doing and then find out how this applies to us uh, who live here and now today. So let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that, uh, that he is our blessed hope and that we can gather today together and worship you Father, we thank you that your word says wherever two or three are gathered in your name, that you are there. We know that your presence is here spiritually among us, that though you are with us every day and will never leave us or forsake us, that you are present in a special way now that we are gathered together as your church. And we believe that the Spirit of Christ, that the Holy Spirit Uh, wants to work in our lives, that you desire the Spirit to work in our life to reveal areas of sin that we need to turn from, to reveal areas that you want to minister to, areas of hurts or hang-ups that you want to bring healing to, uh, and, and just to speak your word into our lives, Lord, so that our hearts might be transformed and we would be more like your son, Jesus. We pray that you'd be glorified in this place today. We pray that you'd speak freely and clearly to each one of our hearts about uh, how you want us to live to honor you. Lord, have free reign in this place today, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. (coughs) We left off uh, last week uh, in our study through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 23, uh, we read verses 1 through 11. That's kind of where we ended, even though we bit off more than that. And when we ended, what had happened was Paul had... Uh, He had been in Jerusalem, and he had been worshiping God in the temple, the Jewish temple, and he had been kind of taken by an angry mob, and he had been rescued by uh, the Roman soldiers, rescued, I use that term figuratively, because they then arrested him and almost flogged him, uh, almost had him beat again, 
And Paul appeared before the Jewish leaders to state his case and declare his innocence. And uh, they ended up uh, erupting an, an argument. And they were coming after Paul, two different sides, almost about to tear Paul to pieces, the, the text says. And, and Paul is pulled away again by the Roman soldiers. And he's spending the night in the, in the barracks, in the, uh, the place where the soldiers were, in a prison compartment. And, uh, and that's kind of where we pick up. Uh, he's spending the night there, and Jesus appears to him and says, Paul, you've testified about me here in Jerusalem. You will also testify about me in Rome. And so good job. Keep up the good work. Don't, don't lose heart. And that's, that's where we left off pretty much last week. Uh, this week, we begin in Acts chapter 23, and starting in verse 12, we're going to go Acts 23, 12 through the end of 26, so we're biting off another big chunk. Uh, I'm, I'm going to summarize parts of it for us, and then we'll actually look at the text together at some other parts to, to bring out some things. So what we see is Paul is still there in Jerusalem, where he's been uh, in the, the Roman barracks, been in, in uh, holding throughout the night. And uh, while Paul's in Jerusalem, there's a group of guys, 40 Jewish uh, men, who are, are just appalled at Paul's message. They, they cannot stand this idea that God would save Jews, not through the law, but through Jesus Christ through a suffering servant who died on the cross. They also can't stand, and this is the primary piece that they can't stand, is that God would save Gentiles, non-Jewish people, the same way. And that he is just as willing to save non-Jewish people as he is to save Jewish people. And so a group of 40 Jewish men have decided that they are not going to eat or drink anything until Paul is killed. Now, whenever we fast, when we uh, refrain from eating food or drink to spend that time uh, in, in devotion to the Lord, prayer, Bible study, worship, we're making the statement that, God, you are my daily bread. You are more important to me than food. I need you more than I need food. That's, that's what fasting is saying, that you are my sustenance. These guys are fasting, and they're basically making a statement. Paul's death is more important to us than food. Paul's death will be our bread. Paul's death will be our sustenance. The end of the gospel in Jerusalem will be what sustains us. And so they've decided that they are going to hold out until Paul is dead. They asked the Jewish leaders to, to have uh, the Roman guard send Paul back to their, their council so that they can hear him again. And in the meantime, they're going to jump him and they're going to kill him. Well, somehow or another, we're not told how, Paul's nephew hears about this. And, uh, and Paul's nephew finds out that these men are going to kill Paul. He goes to his uncle Paul and tells him, here's what I heard. And Paul tells one of the soldiers, take this young boy to your leader, to the, the leader of the Roman guard. He has something to tell you. The young boy tells the, the tribune, the, the Roman uh, commander, uh, that there's 40 guys who are going to ambush Paul when the Jewish leaders ask you to send him back to appear before them. Uh, and this guy named uh, Lysias hears about this, and he tells the boy, tell no one. And then he asks for, let me get this straight, 200 foot soldiers, I believe it is, uh, 70 
so, uh, mounted soldiers and another 200 spearmen. Uh, I might have got one of those mixed up, but it's a total of 470 Roman soldiers that are going to escort Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea, where the Roman governor is located, to protect Paul from being uh, ambushed, but also to ensure that justice is carried out. And so uh, then the Jewish leaders come to Caesarea, where Paul has been sent, and they, they want to appeal for Paul to be Executed. They want to make their case that Paul is a criminal. And they finally have an, a, a hearing with Felix, who is the governor there. And they bring in a guy who is not one of their own. Uh, and some uh, commentators think that this guy is not even a Jew, that he's actually a Gentile. Which is, remember, the irony of this. The Jews are attacking Paul because of basically his mission with the gospel to the Gentiles. And yet they, they hire a professional speaker, a lawyer, who's quite possibly a Gentile, to make their case for the death of Paul. So they have a hearing before Felix, and here's where we pick up. Chapter 24, latter half of verse 2, says this. Since, through you, this is this professional speaker making his case, appealing for the death of Paul before Felix the governor. Since through you... Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him, you yourself will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So this, this uh, orator, this speaker, this perhaps a lawyer, making his case against Paul, uh, opens up with a lot of flattery to Felix. Uh, Felix was, was not an honest forthright, upstanding leader. He was a crooked man. And so his, their opening statements here is just flattery. There's no truth to this. He hasn't done many great things for the Jewish people. He's a harsh ruler. He's a wicked man. And they're flattering him, trying to get what they want, the death of Paul. And they bring these trumped-up charges against Paul. And Felix hears their charges. And then he allows Paul to respond. Verse 10. Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over the nation. That's true. I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so the, the way, following Jesus, Christianity. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. 
So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So Paul says, they can't prove the charges they made against me. I've done nothing wrong. The men who started this whole thing aren't even here. I came to Jerusalem to bring alms, to bring benevolence, to bring relief to Jews, which is true. Paul came with a gift from the churches in Asia and elsewhere to bring a relief to the Jewish Christians who were in need. Paul says, I'm worshiping there. I did nothing wrong. They started the riot. This is, this is their deal. Uh, the only thing that, that anyone can, can call me guilty of is my hope in the resurrection. That's why I'm here. My hope in the resurrection. Now, uh, Felix doesn't make a decision on the spot. We read in the next several verses that he doesn't say, well, Paul's innocent, and he doesn't say Paul's guilty. He tells the Jews, I'm not going to make a decision now. I'm going to wait till uh, Lysias, the, the tribune, the commander of the, the Roman guard who was there in Jerusalem who rescued Paul. I, I'm going to wait till he comes, and I'm going to hear it straight from him. Uh, and in the meantime, we're told, verse 24, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, that's Paul, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now, two things. Uh, Claudia, or Drusilla, is the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Uh, if, if you remember your Bible stories, Herod the Great was king when Jesus was born. He commanded that uh, all the, the babies, the newborn baby boys in the vicinity where Jesus was born would be killed uh, because he did not want to lose his power and authority. Even believing that Jesus was the promised Messiah, he would rather kill the Messiah and stand guilty before God than to lose his position of authority as the king. And this is King Herod's granddaughter, Drusilla. Her husband, Felix, uh, is the governor, the Roman-appointed governor. He's not Jewish, does not have a Jewish background at all. And Paul speaks before them, he says, about self-control and righteousness and the judgment to come. Now, Drusilla had been married before, and Felix basically uh, took her away from her husband. May, you know, pursued her, went after her, and, and they had an adulterous relationship, but it was okay because he ended up marrying her. Uh, that's what they thought. And so Paul, Paul is making his argument on righteousness. You, you both know. You both know that what's happened here, your, your marriage, how, how you came. This is, this is not admirable. This is not honorable. Not only Drusilla among the Jews, but Felix, even among, you know, you just took another guy's wife. Come on, that's not righteous. And then they talk about, talks about self-control. Well, that, 
that's uh, relevant because obviously they didn't execute self-control. They, they lusted after each other. They went after each other. And then Paul talks about judgment. Well, why, uh, what about judgment? That God will hold all of us accountable. That God will judge us based upon our actions. That you too have answered to no one for the way that your marriage came together. But someday you will answer to God. And that's why faith in Jesus is so vital. And Paul's sharing them with this with them, and they become alarmed. It's an uncomfortable message. And you can imagine it was uncomfortable for them. And so Felix sends them away, but we're told that over a period of two years, Felix would call for Paul from time to time because Felix was a wicked man, and he hoped that Paul would offer him money. We don't know if it's because he wanted to kill Paul himself, and so he could say, oh, you tried to bribe me, so you're guilty, so now I'll kill you, or if he just wanted money. Either way, he was a wicked man. He did not care about true justice. And over that period of two years, nothing changed. Paul was not released. Felix left him in jail as a favor to the Jews. And Felix was not converted. He did not turn from his sin and trust in Christ. The reality of the coming judgment had no bearing on the way he lived his life. And so Paul is still there in jail. And a new governor comes into, into term, Festus. Now, Festus goes down to Jerusalem, since he's new on the job, and Jerusalem is one of the areas over which he is, is in charge. And while he's in Jerusalem, the Jews there present their case against Paul, and they say, send Paul down and, and try Paul here. And again, there's another plot to kill Paul on the way. Probably not the same group of 40 men. Uh, you can go a long time without food and water, but probably not two years um, so, uh, so they, they ended up breaking their fast and, uh, it, it might be some of the same guys, probably some others, but nonetheless, it's the same mentality. It's the same goal. We want to kill Paul and, uh, Festus, this new governor says, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going up to Caesarea in a couple days and that's where Paul's being held. So instead of me bringing Paul down here, why don't you all just come up there and meet, meet me there? And so... Uh, they, they arrive in Caesarea, they make their case against Paul, and, uh, and then Paul is given his chance to respond to them. In verse 8 of chapter 25, Paul says, <clears throat> Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed committed any offense, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before them? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal. I am standing before the Roman appointed judge. This is what he's saying, where I ought to be tried because he's a Roman citizen, so he should receive justice as a Roman citizen at the hands of Roman court. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charge against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And so now Paul is going to stand before Caesar, the most powerful man 
and the known world, he is going to stand before the highest authority in all of civilization and and Roman civilization, the Roman Empire, the king of the Roman Empire. And, uh, And so the Jews go their way, and Paul is left there in, in holding in Caesarea. Now, while Paul is there, we're told that uh, King Agrippa, who is uh, another Roman-appointed ruler over uh, that general area, this is Herod's uh, grandson, um, King, Her- King Herod the Great, who killed all the babies you know, in the area Jesus was born. This is his grandson, King Agrippa. So he has a Jewish background, and he is a Roman-appointed ruler over that vicinity, along with the governor, uh, the governor Festus. And so King Agrippa and his wife Bernice, or not wife, his half, half-sister, sister-half-sister Bernice, they come to where Festus is, and kind of to respect, pay their respects to him because he's new on the job. And while they are there, Festus tells King Agrippa about the situation that he has. He says, I've got this guy named Paul, and the Jews have, he was, he was a holdover, uh, and the Jews have come and they've made accusations against him. And he's, I, I found nothing really that he's guilty of, and he's appealed to Caesar. So, you know, what, what am I to do? I'm going to have to send him to Caesar. And King Agrippa said, I'd like to hear. I'd like to hear Paul's argument, his defense. And, and Festus says, very well, tomorrow we'll, we'll have this. So the next day, King Agrippa, the, the king over that area, the, great-grandson, or the grandson of Herod the Great, his half-sister Bernice, uh, and also all the men of, of uh, importance in, in the area of Caesarea, all the high-standing citizens, they all gather together to hear Paul's defense. And so Festus opens up and he makes an explanation. Here's here's what happened. This man was in prison when I took office. The Jews have made this accusation against him, but uh, it it wasn't anything about the Roman law for which he was found uh, that they are accusing him of. Verse 19, he says, Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Uh, this, is, this is what Paul actually, this is what Festus says to Agrippa. And so the next day when everyone is there, uh, Paul is brought out before them. Sorry, I kind of backtrack. The next day when everyone is there, Paul is brought out before him. And, and here is Paul's response about what has happened. Uh, he says, verse 1, chapter 26. Verse, actually, verse 2. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, 
to which all twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? It's the hope of the resurrection. It's, it's as Festus says, Paul's argument that Jesus, who is dead, is alive. That, that's the issue at hand. And what unfolds, Paul begins to share with Agrippa and with all of those who are present his story. He already gave them the introduction. I was a strict and devout Jew. And then he goes on to tell them about how he persecuted Christians, how he persecuted violently those who put their trust in Jesus, how he even went to other towns to capture these people so that they would be brought back to Jerusalem and be put to death, and how Jesus appeared to Paul. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Why are you resisting my will? Why are you fighting against my church? And Paul repented, and Paul put his faith in Christ And Paul was called by Jesus to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And as Paul is talking, Festus interrupts him. This governor, Festus, interrupts him. And he says, Paul, you're out of your mind. You've read too much. You've spent too much time in books. You've lost it. Your great learning has made you mad. This is this talk about, Festus is thinking, this talk about people coming back from the dead, visions, all of this stuff, Paul, this is, this is madness. And Paul says, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent, Felix. I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking the truth. And King Agrippa knows this. Verse 26. For the king knows about these things. And to him, I speak boldly. I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. And and you can imagine the death of Jesus, the day of Pentecost, the beginning of Christianity. Thousands of of Jews, some in opposition, some in favor. If you're a ruler, uh, you you probably catch wind of of these different things that, that are going on. And so Paul says King Agrippa has some understanding of these events. This is this has not been just some little uh, ongoing uh, event in, a, in an outside village. This has been a pretty, pretty monumental thing among the Jewish people. Verse 27, Paul says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He's, he's calling them out. He's trying to connect the Old Testament, uh, the beliefs of, of the Old Testament, the beliefs of the Jewish religion, the beliefs and the promises of the prophets to Jesus. And he singles him out. You are a Jew, King Agrippa. Jewish by ancestry, Jewish in religion. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa knows where this is going. He knows that Paul believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. And and he knows that Paul is trying to elicit a response to put his faith in Jesus. Verse 29, Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day. Think about, Paul has had the opportunity to share the gospel to a Roman governor, to a Roman king, not the highest king, but a, a Roman appointed king, and to the most prominent men in the area of Caesarea, a Roman colony. 
Paul has, has had an opportunity to share the gospel with some of the most influential people in, in that area and in Roman life. And Paul says, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So Paul will go to Caesar. And that's how chapter 26 ends. Now, Paul has appeared before three different judges, all Roman judges, making his defense. Their authority is by the authority of Rome. Paul himself is a Roman citizen. And with regards to the Roman law, Paul is found innocent by all three men. He has done nothing deserving of death. He has done nothing criminal by Roman standards. And in each setting, Paul clarifies that the issue at hand is not Roman law. The issue at hand is the resurrection of the dead. That is why Paul is in chains. That is why he is being opposed, is his belief and his hope in the resurrection of the dead. Now, here's some things that we can observe from this chunk of Scripture about Paul and about the truth and how it relates to us. The first thing is that in all three settings, Paul was the one on trial standing before judgment. Paul is the only one standing in view of judgment. Yet someday Paul would again stand before judgment along with everyone else we read about today and everyone who has ever lived. And this will take place at the resurrection of the dead and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, hear my voice, Jesus is saying, and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is saying, when I return, the voice of God will go forth and all who are dead will be raised. They will be raised to judgment. Over in Matthew 25, it talks about this. It says that when the Son of Man returns, He will sit on His glorious throne and He will gather all the nations. That doesn't mean China, Africa, the United States, Russia. It means all the peoples, all the nations, all the people groups, all the ethnicities. He will gather all the peoples of the earth before Him and He will sit in judgment and He will separate them. The, the text says, as one separates the, sheep's, the sheep from the goats, the sheep being a symbol of God's flock, those who are God's people, those who belong to Him, and the goats being a symbol of those who are cast out, those who do not belong to God, those who belong to the devil. And so Jesus will sit on His throne of judgment at His return. Paul will stand before that judgment. So will Festus, Felix, Agrippa, and Bernice, Drusilla, Lysias, all those Jews, and every one of us. The highest authority, second observation, the highest authority Paul could appeal to was Caesar, who was the Roman king and the most powerful man in the known world. Paul would later stand before Caesar and his judgment would be the final word on the matter. So once Caesar had said, this is my decision, didn't matter if the Jews appealed anymore or if Paul made any more defense, Caesar's decision was final. There was no higher court of appeal. Like Paul, someday all of us 
along with all who have ever lived, will stand before Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings, Lord of lords, the most powerful man in all creation, being fully God and fully man and one with the Father. His judgment will be the final word on this matter. Who will be judged on the day of judgment? It will be Jesus Christ. In Acts 17.31, Paul is preaching to the crowd on Mars Hill in Athens, the philosophers and uh, religious Athenians. And Paul says, Because he, that is God, has fixed a day on which he will judge. Paul actually, before that, says, Everyone who has worshipped idols, who has worshipped stuff, who has not worshipped the one true God, everyone must repent. They must turn from all these other things and they must worship the one true God. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus himself says in John chapter 5, verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Jesus is the God-man. He is the man. He is God become man. He lived a perfect life as a man. He died in the place of sinful man and took the wrath of God, enduring what only God Himself could endure. And then God raised Him from the dead. And because He has lived the life that we should live but can't and died the death that we deserve to die, but don't have to. Because He is the perfect Adam, because He is the true Israel, He alone has the authority to stand in judgment of all humanity. And He will. God has given Him the authority, and He will be the judge, an even higher authority than Caesar. And His word will be the final word on the matter. Third observation. The issue at hand for Paul in this text was whether or not he had violated the Roman law. Every one of the judges found that Paul had done nothing incriminating with regards to the Roman law. The issue at hand for Paul and the rest of humanity when we stand before Jesus Christ will be whether or not we have violated God's law. In Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, Paul is talking and he says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And then Paul goes on to talk about how even non-Jews, people who didn't have the laws of God, the Mosaic law, how even they have a conscience that has been given to them by God to be able to differentiate between what is right and what is wrong, what is honorable and what is dishonorable. And Paul says that even their works, verse 15, show that they have a law written on their hearts. They have a conscience and their conscience will bear witness and their conflicting thoughts will accuse or excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, Paul says, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So even those who don't have the Mosaic law, they still have a sense of knowing what is right and what is wrong. God has given them that conscience, and that conscience will testify against them on that day that they have done what is wrong in God's sight. Jesus Christ will be the judge, and he will be basing his judgment not on Roman law, but on God's law and whether people have honored God in what is right and what is not right. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Fourth observation, during each of the, his three hearings, 
Paul's defense for his innocence is based on his integrity and his uh, faithfulness, his obedience to the Roman law. Paul points to his integrity. I have done nothing wrong to the Jews. I have not started riots. I have not done anything dishonorable before Caesar. Paul appeals to his, his obedience to the law, being a law-abiding citizen. At the final judgment, however, Paul and those who will be saved will not be declared innocent because of anything they have done, but solely on account of what Jesus Christ has done for them. Paul says in Galatians 2.16, That a person is not justified by works of the law, the Mosaic law, or any other effort for that matter, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified, just as if I'd never sinned, and just as if I'd lived a life of perfect obedience and faithfulness to God. Justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, Because by works of the law, by human effort, no one will be declared innocent before God. And over in Colossians 1, 21 through 23, Paul reiterates that we as believers in Christ stand holy and blameless before God. Not because of works in the law, not because of human effort, but because of Jesus' atoning death on the cross. Fifth observation Neither Paul nor anyone else whose trust is in Jesus will have anything to fear at the judgment. Paul didn't have anything to fear when he appeared before Festus, Felix, or Agrippa. And Paul is quite confident about standing before Caesar that he is innocent, that he has done nothing wrong. Well, neither Paul or anyone else who has put their trust in Jesus will have anything to fear on that day when we stand before Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 tell us that Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath, from the fear of judgment, those who have put their faith in Him. And yet, even still, Paul believes he will be required to give an account of his life before Christ. He made that statement that he seeks to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Paul believed that he would be required to give an account of his life, and so that's why he lived to have a clear conscience before God and man. And since we too will give an account of our lives to Christ, we should strive for a clear conscience as well. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, whether we are at home or away, meaning whether we are present with the Lord in spirit or whether we are separated from the Lord here on earth in our physical bodies, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all, all without exception, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The the judgment of God. Christ is the Son of God. He will be the judge. We will all stand before the seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So there is still a responsibility. It will not be a responsibility to save ourselves, but it will be a responsibility for how we who have been saved have lived, what we have done with our life. Have we lived in a manner worthy of our calling? The resurrection of the dead gives us hope because it means that those who have trusted in Christ will live with God forever in new bodies on a new earth without sickness, sorrow, death, or the devil will be free of the presence of all of them. The resurrection of the dead also gives us hope as it gave Paul hope 
And it gives us peace because we know that justice will be done and that God's enemies will be punished forever. Every evil act, every abusive deed, every injustice ever committed was either dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ for those who have put their hope in him or will be dealt with at the judgment seat of Christ on the day of judgment for those who have rejected him as their king. We don't have to worry about the outcome of things because God will take care of it all once and for all at the resurrection. This is our hope. Amen.